Amen. Before we come to God's Word this morning, I did want to make one quick correction for your bulletin. Uh, underneath the calendar of the week, the uh, joint meeting of the session of the diaconate is listed incorrectly. I just want you to know, most of you already know, that um, the second, the first Tuesday falls on a busy holiday week, and so the joint session is going to take place on July the 9th, Tuesday, July the 9th. All right, we are in John chapter 12 this morning, and we are taking a look and thinking about what it means to give ourselves to Christ, perhaps in a way that we never have before, what it means to pour ourselves out in love and worship to a beautiful Savior. We're in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. We hear about Mary. Six days before the Passover. Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only in account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom they, Jesus had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning indeed to hear your word. We come this morning to hear you speak. Father, would you open our hearts and our minds that what comes to us this morning would come in power with life-changing, life-transforming, heart-warming power of your spirit brought home by the truth of your word as you alone work in our hearts. Father, would you come this morning and speak to us, for we ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe in the story that we have before us this morning, we are given a picture of what I believe the entire Christian life should look like. This is really what it's, in a sense, all about, what the entirety of the Christian life, in, in a picture form, in, in an illustration, what the Christian life should be like as a response to Jesus of who He is and what He has done and what He is doing. A picture of a life that is freely devoted to Christ. Which is always a stark contrast then to a life that is devoted to self. And we see both in this passage. The contrast drawn for us between Mary and the response of Judas to Mary's act of worship. So this is the Christian life in a nutshell. Turning from a life that is devoted to self and turning to a life that is utterly and poured out in devotion to Christ, right? Isn't that the Christian life? Turning from self 
selfish motives, selfish thoughts, self-serving, to worship someone greater than ourselves, to worship God through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and to give ourselves to Him. See, this takes place on the night before the triumphal entry. It's the night before the so-called triumphal entry when Jesus enters Jerusalem for the very last time and begins His week of passion. There's the Last Supper, and He's ultimately betrayed and tried in a travesty of a trial and beaten and crucified and buried. And on the night before His triumphal entry into Jerusalem for this last time, He stops in Bethany. Jesus was born for this destiny. He was born to go to Jerusalem this week. He was born to come and fulfill a mission on behalf of His people. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when Jesus is talking with His disciples and asking them about who everybody thinks He's in and is he, who, who everybody thinks He is and there's confusion about His identity and Peter makes His great confession. And later in that chapter, Jesus, we're told that when the days drew near for Him to be taken up, Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. When the days drew near, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. And the old language said He set His face like flint. Right? He, fixed his, he fixed His purpose and that he was heading from that moment on, he was heading to this week and to, to that day and to that cross. And that was his purpose and his mission. In verse 7, Jesus tells the disciples to leave Mary alone. And he tells them to let her keep and to use this ointment for my burial. Jesus is sitting at this dinner table and he's sitting facing this week with his friends gathered around him knowing that the cross is before him. Knowing that he is going to die. And he speaks of his burial and that this is preparation for that burial. In 11, the verse just before the passage I read, in chapter 11, verse 57, we read this, that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders, if anyone knew where Jesus was, that they should let him know so that they could arrest him. There was a standing arrest warrant. Word had gone out, wanted posters, so to speak. If anyone knows where Jesus is, we would very much like to get our hands on him. And so it becomes dangerous at this point. Jesus is a wanted criminal in the eyes of the Jewish court. They want to be rid of him and they want their hands on him. And so, back in verse 8 of chapter 11, if you remember when Jesus came to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, that even then, they wanted him. In chapter 11, verse 8, it says, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there to Bethany in the vicinity of Jerusalem again? Like, Jesus, they want to kill you. Don't you understand this? Like, they, they have blood in their eyes. Jesus understands. Right? Jesus knows better than they do. So we have this 30-something-year-old man marching knowingly and inexorably to a certain death. And on the way to the cross, he passes through Bethany and he spends some time visiting with his friends. Lazarus is here, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. <clears throat> the apostles are gathered around him. In chapter 
in verse 11, down at the end of this section that we just read, it's revealed also that there's a, a, a plot out against Lazarus. It says that they made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, Jews were coming to the faith. So even as he sits down to this dinner and he joins up with his friends there, because of Lazarus' growing fame and the symbol he is of Jesus' power, saving and raising power, the power of God at work in his life, God's testimony to Jesus' identity and his purpose and his mission through the power of raising the dead, that they want to do away with Lazarus as well. They're trying to kill him. So you got two wanted men. In the midst of all this plotting and this tension, in verse 2 we're told, they gave him a dinner party. With this small band of outlaws, hunted men sitting in this group. So you, you just, I'm, I'm trying to paint so that you get just a sense of the atmosphere here. Jesus knows. He set from back in Luke 9, he says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Right? He speaks of his up and coming burial. Right? Lazarus is wanted by the authorities. They're all sitting around the table having this, this dinner party. And Matthew and Mark, who both record this uh, episode, and each one gives a little bit different detail, and we have that in a lot of the different episodes in Jesus' life. Each of the authors gives a little bit of a different perspective, records some of the different details depending on their purpose and what they're uh, trying to communicate. Uh, so each one gives a little bit more and a little bit less. I believe they're 100% compatible, but you get more and less information. Matthew and Mark both tell us that the dinner is being held at the house of Simon the leper. I'm pretty sure his name ought to be changed to Simon the former leper. Leper. <laughs> He's not a leper. The former leper. We're fairly certain that Jesus uh, healed this man and that they are now in his house sharing dinner at his table. And there's this tension in the air. This is a dangerous moment. The authorities are looking for him actively. There's an aura of anticipation. There's an edge of fear as he draws near and he's set not only to go to Bethany, but the next day to get up and to march into Jerusalem itself. It's an aura of anticipation. Jesus is brooding on the cross. If you look down in chapter 12 to verse 27 and following, he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this very purpose that I came to this hour. Father, glorify yourself in me. I won't seek a way out, but his truth is my soul is troubled. And as Jesus is sitting with these guys, and he's very aware of what's in front of him. There is this tension in the air. There is this probably brooding sense in Jesus. And some things never change. In verse 2, we see that Martha is still serving. Martha served. Lazarus is at the table. And Mary is still at Jesus' feet. She's doing different things. If you remember, she was sitting, listening, absorbing all that Jesus had to say on that uh, day a couple of months ago. But now she's still at His feet. Still worshiping. Judas is still lost. And these characters give us the contrast in this passage between Mary at Jesus' feet and Judas' response of unbelief and Mary's act of utter worship and devotion to Christ and Judas's utter devotion to self. Mary's spontaneous and surprising act of worship and Judas' spontaneous act of self-worship. 
right? which is what it was. Spontaneous act of self-worship and manipulation. Self-seeking manipulation. So the dinner party is underway. The apostles are reclining at the table. Lazarus is reclining with them. Mary, Martha is scurrying around serving as she does. This is her act of worship. This is her act of service as she serves at table. There's palpable danger in the air. There's anticipation. Martha bringing the food to the table. The apostles sharing it. And at some point in the dinner, and you don't know when it happens, it doesn't say before, during, or after, but whenever it is, it doesn't really matter. At some point, Mary enters the room carrying her pound of nard and approaches Jesus and goes through this act of, of worship in the presence and in the sight of all. She wants to express her love to the Savior. She's, she's not at the table eating with them, which is not the custom. She's not serving as Martha does, but she wants to express her worship, and she shows up in the middle of it, compelled to an act of abandoned worship. And I believe, as I said at the outside, this is a picture of the response of every heart that is genuinely devoted to Christ. What happens in the life of a person who puts their faith in Christ and is joined to Him in the bonds of love? The act is self-abasing, it's humble, it's self-sacrificing and generous, and it's self-forgetting. Self-abasing, self-sacrificing, self-forgetting, right? She's expressing the deepest humility. To reach his feet, we know that gee, she's got to be on her knees, right? So she comes in. If she's bathing his feet, we know she's on her knees. Mark and Matthew both point out that she anointed his head. In both of those Gospels, they speak of her anointing just his head. In John's Gospel, interesting, he only speaks of her anointing his feet. And I believe that he, she anointed him from head to foot. I believe that she, she anointed Jesus, perfumed him head to foot. But depending on their, their motives, John is focusing in on Mary washing his feet as part of this, this act of devotion. And I think that's because in the very next chapter, he is going to tell us a story that, again, only he tells us, of Jesus washing the defeat of the disciples. And I think he is painting the picture and he focuses in on Mary kneeling at the feet of Jesus, washing his feet because he's saying Mary gets it. Because Jesus is going to say in the next chapter, you, I have given an example unto you. Go and do likewise. Mary already gets it. Mary is on her knees washing the feet of Jesus. It's likely that Jesus is dusty and road weary. As most of us know, it's customary to wash a guest's feet. It's a servant's job. But Mary doesn't fulfill this custom as a slave or a servant doing her duty, does she? It's not the time and it's not the way. She is not washing his feet in fulfillment of duty as a slave. She is on her knees in an extraordinary act of humility. Freely. Willingly lovingly washing the Savior's feet. And she doesn't just wash his feet, she breaks the bank and there's a sense in which she washes his feet in gold. Right? It, she, she spared no expense, this expensive perfume, and so it's not only a self-abasing and humbling act that she's on her knees at his, at his feet freely washing them, but this is, a, this is an act of self-sacrifice. This is costly. This is generous beyond 
really for us, as, you, as we talk about it, I hope that we'll see beyond our own understanding of really the outpouring that comes here. It's an act of passion. Right? There are no holds barred when she does this thing. There's no expense spared, which is part of what Judas responds to. When he sees this, he's like, what? You've got to be crazy. You've got to be kidding me. You used over a pound of nard. Nard or spike nard is a, is, a, is a spice. It's a perfume. It comes from northern India. It's imported. You know, this is like Parisian perfume in a, in a bottle that costs you, you know, $3,000 a bottle kind of a thing. 300, over 300 denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. It was an easy system. A one day, one denarius. Over 300 denarius, if you take out Sabbaths and those kind of things, is easily over a year's wages. So you think of any laborer, just even the lower end laborer, a day's wages in our culture. How much money is that? A year's wages. A great portion of her total wealth. Matthew adds that it was stored in an alabaster jar, which itself would have great value. And we're told by Mark that she actually broke the alabaster jar and spilled the contents out as she did it. And she anoints him from his head to his foot, spilling every drop of it as she pours out this pound. This pound of love, of worship, down to its last drop that was available to her. Love like this is not calculated. <laughs> she wasn't adding it up. It was, it, was, it was a spontaneous. She gives freely. She gives generously. She can't give enough. And she's self-forgetting because even as she's doing this, getting on her knees and breaking the bank and washing his feet in gold and a year's wages, an enormous amount of financial resources poured out on Jesus. And as she's on her knees doing this, she completely forgets herself. It's a self-abandoned act because she's not caring what anybody else is thinking at this point. You can imagine at this point in the dinner, everybody was stopped. You know, mid-motion, I don't know what they were doing, but you know every eye is on what's going on here. I'm sure there, that silence fell on the room as they watched what Mary is doing. She's in the middle of the room. She's accosted Jesus, who is the center of the party. It's, it's a party in his honor. She takes her treasure, ignoring the crowd and giving herself to her Savior so completely and utterly. And at the high point of this display is that she lets her hair down and begins to dry his feet. Women don't do that. It's not just a social faux pas. It's not allowed. You don't. Right? You don't. Mary does. And she doesn't care. There's this sense that it is Mary and Jesus. And she lets her hair down and gently dries the perfume of her love on his feet. Most in the room would have gasped. A few hands would have gone to their mouths. Perfume was bad enough. 
She gave them no thought. She worshipped. Right, this, is the whole, this is a picture of the whole Christian life. If you ask me, there's this picture here of this humble, generous, selfless, self-forgetful pouring out of love and devotion and service of our resources, whatever your treasure is. What is the treasure you're hanging on to? You can imagine a woman in this culture, I don't know what her status, I don't know how much money she had all, overall, but I can guarantee you this was a treasure. This was at the center of her hoard, this imported Parisian uh, North Indian perfume that had such great value. What is it you hold in the middle of your life that is of such value that we would hold back, that we would never? This expression of humble, generous, self-forgetting, just self-sacrificing love and worship. Mary was a spectacle. On her knees, breaking the vial, smelling the house up as she does it, letting her hair down, drying his feet. Every eye is watching. The silence is deafening. And into this holy moment, Judas speaks. <laughs> Can you imagine the voice of criticism? Voice of unbelief. Can you imagine the rapt attention? And Judas boldly breaks it. He speaks first. He speaks critically. He speaks to the other apostles. I don't think Jesus heard this. When you read Matthew and Mark, you get the idea Jesus says, Jesus knowing what was in their hearts made his statement. I think that, you know, they're sitting around a table. There's 14 or 15 of them. I can't, when I'm sitting at Fellowship Hall and there are like seven or eight of us around a table, I can't hear the conversation the other time, at the other side, and that, that may be because I'm losing my hearing. But, but, but there's this, there's, you know, there's a sizable crowd. There's 15, 16 guys at the table. This is going on on the other side. Jesus knows what they're saying in their heart. And what John wants to point out is that Judas is the ringleader. Judas is the one who speaks first. And he speaks to the other apostles. And he says... To that effect, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? What's wrong with this woman? Her priorities are all messed up. What is she thinking? And the other apostles, some of them apparently, are like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, that. Because it says that there were several of them then at that point who are mumbling. And Jesus speaks to the little forming faction of dissent against this act of generosity. Is that all you have to say, Judas? Is that all that comes to mind? Is that all that you see here? Right? He watched this thing. All he saw was dollar signs. All he saw was dollar signs. On the surface, it sounds very reasonable. <laughs> it even sounds very spiritual. I'm only concerned for the poor. I'm only concerned that we could have done. I'm only pointing out the stewardship implications of Mary's decision. that She's wasting God's money. But here's the thing. Judas misses the whole point. It was a holy moment. And Judas couldn't see it. He was doing math. 
They have to recognize what God is doing because God's math and our math is not the same. Most of you know the story of Jim Elliott. He was a young man back in the 50s and 60s that God called the mission work. I think he was like a Harvard man or Yale man. Apparently he was brilliant, utterly brilliant. He's a guy with so much potential. He's on the who's who's list of, of, the, of the era. And he felt God's call to the mission field. And he went to Ecuador into the, literally, literally into the jungles of nowhere to preach the gospel to lost people. And the people looking on said, what a waste. What a waste of a life. This man has so much potential. He's so smart. He's so educated. He's so popular. What a waste. And then when he's killed in a short order, it's not very long before he dies on the mission field. And how people felt vindicated. Told you. <laughs> what a waste of a life. Really? God's math and our math is not the same. There are churches among those villages now. In the generations, literally in, in the months and years to follow in the ministry of his wife and his, and his other cohorts, that, that men and women were one to Christ, churches were planted, and there's thriving church in the midst of those villages today because of the self-sacrifice and giving of one man who in the eyes of the world is a total waste. But in the eyes of God was the outpouring of worship like no other. Marva Dawn has a book called The Royal Waste of Time. It's a book about worship. Think about that. Everybody else is thinking they slept in this morning. They're playing golf this morning. They're doing this this morning. You guys are wasting your time. But there are, there are, there are expenditures that spiritualized see as some of the most valuable and, and potentially important investments that we could make in this life. If my family knew... If I express to some of my family, if you're some of your families perhaps knew that you give away 10% or more than 10% of your income every year, they would think you're an idiot. They would think I'm an idiot. It is only when the heart is captured and abandoned to Jesus that such extravagant displays of love and commitment make any sense. But there are spiritual values that cannot be added up with dollar signs. If you will just indulge me while I stretch a point in conclusion. Let me stretch it this way. In verse 3, we're told that Mary therefore took the pound of expensive anointment and pure nard and she anointed the feet of Jesus and she wiped it with the hair and we're told this, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house was filled with the fragrance of it. So much was poured out that it wafted, you know, into the other rooms of the house. The house smelled strongly of this perfume. And I believe that when our lives are sacrificial and self-abandoned in worship and service to Jesus Christ, that it gives an aroma to the whole life. That, the whole, that it wafts into every room of the house, into our marriages and into our workplace and into our service and work at church, where we live, where we work, where we play, and our relationships with our neighbors and, and every nook and cranny of our souls, that, that it fills.
it's the whole house to be to love and abandon ourselves to Christ, to take our greatest and richest treasures and pour them out for Christ, can't do anything but capture and make the whole life smell of it. 2 Corinthians 2, it's there in your bulletin under the last point. Paul writes this, he says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ is always leading us in triumphal procession, and He spreads through us the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are the aroma of Christ. The aroma of generous love. The aroma of abandoned devotion. The love and worship of a Christ who is so beautiful. Who is so worthy of our every last drop. The question is, does our lives reek of spiritual blindness? Or does it give off the aroma of Christ? In his letter to the Philippians, Paul is in prison. And he's also facing certain death. He's a, facing a, 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 a trial, the possibility of execution. He's torn. I don't know whether to, you know, if I live, I live for Christ. If I die, it's gain. And he sees before him this possibility of death. And he writes to the church in Philippi. And he writes this, even... Philippians 2 in your bulletin, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, a, a Greek libation, an offering of oil or wine that is poured out like any other offering on the altar, completely spilled and used up in the act of, in the act of worship. Paul says, even if I'm poured out like, a, like a, a, an act of worship in the service of Christ. He says, I'm glad. I rejoice. I give myself willingly. I give myself freely. Every last drop in service of my Savior. Why, Paul? Why, Jim Elliot? Why, Mary? And the answer is because of the worthiness and beauty of the Savior who they know, love, and serve. Jesus is knowingly and inexorably moving toward the cross. And on the way, this encounter takes place. He's on his way to the cross where in love he is going to pour himself out. Every last drop on my behalf. And yours. Let me just ask you. Does that add up? Does it, do the math. The infinitely worthy Jesus. The infinitely worthy Son of God. The only Holy One. The only Righteous One. The only One who could do it right. Who did it right. Who lived that life that we failed to live. This One gives Himself on the cross. To pay the penalty for my sin. And for your sin. It doesn't add up my friends. There is a math in heaven that does not compute to our minds. And the extravagant love of God that calls forth 
a response of love. The great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, says it so well. Were the whole realm of nature mine, the whole, the whole of the earth and all that it contains, and the universes and all that they contain, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing. Love so divine. Demands my life, my soul, my all. Have you given yourself to Jesus Christ? Have you come to put your faith in Him, to see Him as the one, infinitely worthy, that pearl of great price, for whom you would sell it all, recklessly sell everything, so that you could have Him? Put your faith in Jesus. Pray with me this morning. Father in heaven, we thank You and we praise You for the gift of Your Son. And we confess that we are not worthy of His death, of His life, of the righteousness that is rightfully His, but given to us because of His sacrificial, self-abasing, self-forgetting love. Father, I pray that You would open our eyes and let us get one glimpse of this Savior. That we would forget ourselves and lose ourselves in worshipful devotion of this One. In whose name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close and respond. 10,000 reasons.